Our scripture passage this morning comes from Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. Listen for what God might be saying to you. God's kingdom is like an estate manager who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. They agreed on a wage of a dollar a day and went to work. Later, about 9 o'clock, the manager saw some other men hanging around the town square unemployed. He told them to go work in his vineyard and he would pay them a fair wage. They went. He did the same thing at noon and again at 3 o'clock. At 5 o'clock, he went back and found still others hanging around. He said, why are you standing around all day doing nothing? And they said, because no one has hired us. He told them, go to work in his vineyard. He told them to go work in his vineyard. When the day's work was over, the owner of the vineyard instructed his foreman, call the workers in and pay them their wages. Start with the last hired and go on to the first. Those hired at 5 o'clock came up and each were given a dollar. When those who were hired first saw that, they assumed that they would get far more. But when they got the same, each one, each one of them a dollar. Taking the dollar, they groused angrily to the manager. These last workers put in only one easy hour, and you just made them equal to us, who slaved all day under a scorching sun. He replied to the one speaking for the rest, Friend, I haven't been unfair. We agreed on a wage of a dollar, didn't we? So take it and go. I decided to give the one, to the one who came last the same as you. Can't I do what I want with my money? Are you going to get stingy because I am generous? Here it is again, the great reversal. Many of the first ending up the last, and the last first. May God bless this reading from Holy Scripture. So I remember the first time I act, uh, like, memory I have about thinking about money when I was a kid. Uh, I was at the store. I don't exactly remember what kind of store it was, but I remember wanting something at the store that was really expensive. Um, I didn't grow up with a lot of money, and um, I was always told that we didn't have money for that, whatever that thing was that I wanted. And But one thing I did start to notice is that because uh, I initially had always associated money with cash, you know, with like hard currency, whether it's a dollar bill or change. But I started to notice that my parents would write checks for things. It was the same sheet of paper, but it could be worth whatever amounts that, you know, my mom wrote on it. So if she wrote 100, then that check was worth 100 bucks, you know. And so I was a little confused why my mom would like, limit herself into writing, you know, just the exact amount. Because uh, back in those days, you could actually write a check for more than what you were going to pay for and then get cash back. So I was like, why doesn't my mom just write it for a hundred, like a million dollars, and then we get the change back from that check? Um, check flighting and, you know, uh, check fraud, that stuff, you know, didn't really register. Um, but that's when I began to really think about money as something more than just like a literal thing, that money was uh, representative of something. And I remember my mom sitting down and having a conversation about what a check actually was and that it you know, was symbolic of the cash that was actually held in the bank and that kind of stuff. But then later on when I learned more about money, I realized that actually it's not even true, that like if you write a check, if you have a bank account, the bank doesn't hold all that cash, you know, in some se super secret vault somewhere. Um, it's actually just a number in their computer system um, in a lot of ways. Um, and, and, you know, you, if you watch, like, James Bond and watch Goldfinger, right, 
you learn about the gold standard that it used to be until like 1971 that if you had a dollar bill, you could go to a bank and trade that in for a piece of gold or however tiny amount that it was, but that that piece of cash was representative of some gold that was sitting in some, you know, super secret vault uh, in the middle of Texas or wherever, uh, wherever that vault was in Goldfinger. Um, but that's, that's, uh, you know, that's kind of how we think about money sometimes, is money is just this thing that we have to get what we want, but we don't actually delve into what money actually is. Um, because if you really think about money, it's a really complicated thing, but it's also a big pretend game, right? Um, money has value because we all agree that it has value. So if you take, for example, the country of Brazil, uh, quite a few years back, Brazil was going through this huge economic crisis, inflation was crazy, and nobody trusted that cash was worth anything. So nobody, everybody quit playing the pretend game in Brazil that, you know, whatever, I forgot what the currency was called, was worth anything. Um, so, like, you couldn't go to the store and give people money to buy something because they're like, that's worthless. Like, you know, give us U.S. dollars or, you know, bar let's barter for, like, goods or something. And later on, an economist came up with this idea, well, money is a pretend game, so let's just make up a new money. And that's what they did. They made up a new currency, distributed it, and they said, this is, this is actually valuable and it's worth something. Um, it wasn't based on anything. They just said, let's all pretend, let's play this game that it's worth something, and it saved uh, Brazil's economy. Everyone bought into it, and the reason why Brazil didn't completely go bust and bonkers was everyone agreed to play that game. So what is money? This is a question that we're confronted with constantly in the Gospels. What is money? Is money just a thing that we exchange for goods? Is it just a tool, uh, as Sean says? Or is it evil? Is, is the or is it the love of money that is evil? Um, or is money just this neutral thing that's there um, that you know um, is kind of this meta thing, especially with Bitcoin now? Um, is, uh, or is it something that we use to just quantify the value of things? Um, you know, um, is it to make sure that no such thing is actually priceless? Right? Um, you know, you might think your life is priceless, but there are actually people, you know, in the world who calculate the exact value of your life and your organs, and they're called actuaries, and that's what insurance companies uh, hire when you get life insurance. Um, but I want us to think about money this way, that, uh, and I think this is Jesus's understanding of money. Um, money is a horcrux. Um, for those of you who don't know what horcruxes are, um, how many of you guys have seen Harry Potter? How many of you have seen it through the end? Okay. So, what a horcrux is, is it's an ob so, so just to lay down the basic story, you have Harry Potter, the good guy, you know, the main protagonist, and then you have Voldemort, the main antagonist. Now, for most of the series, Voldemort doesn't show up. 
uh, Voldemort's existence is out there, but it, like, you know, he's kind of this, like, dark cloud hanging around. But it turns out that Voldemort actually exists in these objects that are, I think it's seven objects that are out there. So before Voldemort got vanquished and presumably died in some past, um, Voldemort split his soul into these seven objects. And they're some of them common objects, some of them more like valuable objects. Uh, but nobody knows really that this is what had happened. But Voldemort is out there, his soul is split into these objects, and these objects are out there. And so um, towards the end, it becomes this battle to find these horcruxes and to um, destroy them. Now, I'm not saying when I say that money is a horcrux, that money is like uh, an evil person that Satan had split his soul and then put it into money. Um, what I am saying that money in Jesus' eyes is, an, is this thing that people's lives and experiences and their souls are split into, whether they're good, whether they're bad, right? Money, the way money works in the world is, you know, uh, it, it has value because we believe that it represents value in a prior place, whether you worked for it or produced something from it. Um, and all of those things get into it. People's lives are put into that money, whether it was generated through unfair labor practices, whether it was given joyfully, um, whether it was earned with good old Midwestern uh, hard work and values. Um, people's lives and souls are in, uh, in this money. And I think that's why Jesus focuses so much on this, on money, on what we do with our money, what we think about our money, so many parables about money, is that I think more than anything else, other than maybe your internet browser history, money reveals <laughs> your life. It reveals your hopes about life, what you've done with your life, where you've gone in life, who values your life, how much the world values your life, how much you value someone else's life. Money is a deeply personal object. It's the most personal object. And that's, I believe, why we get so uncomfortable talking about it. Not because it seems crass or those things, because it gets into the most interior part of our life. And if you don't really check your budget and your finances that often, then that part of your, a, a lot of your life is hidden from you, right? Um, uh, if you just go around swiping your credit card doing for things and then not really, yeah, paying it down, then, you know, it's, it's hard to get an account of what your priorities and what you're doing with your life are. Um, and so for Jesus, money is, where the rubber meets the road for faith. Do we actually, the way we think about money actually reveals how committed we are with our faith, our values. We say something, but can, do we do another thing? And money in both Matthew 20 in the passage we read and in Matthew 19, which is just the prior passage, it really reveals the true cost of discipleship. So in Matthew 19, 
Uh, some of you might be familiar with uh, the story of the rich young ruler. So a guy comes to Jesus. He's a rich young ruler. And he comes to Jesus and says, you know, I've followed all of your commands and laws. You know, I've, like the Torah, I've done, done it all, like the gazillion laws and Leviticus, uh, you know, done. But, and then he asked Jesus one more question. Um, what more must I do to enter into the kingdom of God? And Jesus' reply to him is, sell everything you have, give your money to the poor, and follow me. And the guy can't do it, and he turns away, and he walks away really sad. In this scripture passage today, it's, so we can dismiss Matthew 19 as, oh, that's about rich people, right? Um, I don't know if we have any rich young rulers in the room here. We might have aspiring rich young rulers, um, aspirational rich young rulers, but um, maybe not. So it's easy to dismiss this scripture as it's not about us, right? Um, but then Matthew 20, I believe, is about us. Because Matthew 19 might be for the 1%, but Matthew 20 is for everyone who might consider themselves like hardworking Midwestern middle class folk. Because this passage that we just read goes against all our human like understanding and senses of what's fair and what's just, right? To have, uh, you know, one of the things that we want is equal pay for equal work, right? This is uh, one of the uh, things uh, that we advocate for here at UVC, that, we, that all people, especially women, deserve equal pay for equal work. But in this scripture passage, you get equal pay for unequal work. People who worked all day long from, um, I think like you know, six in the morning, get paid the same as those who showed up at three o'clock in the afternoon. And not only that, the people who showed up at three o'clock in the afternoon get paid first. So it'd be one thing if the people who showed up in the morning they worked all day, and they, you know, they agreed to a certain wage, and they haven't really talked about how much they're going to get paid with the other people who showed up late. They had gotten paid first, and they went home. They wouldn't really know that the people behind them got paid the same as they did, right? But Jesus makes sure that everybody knows that they got paid the same. And, that's, and so that's why Jesus, uh, or the, uh, the landowner in this uh, story, pays uh, people the first. And that might be the only reason, but that is an effect of what happens, is that everybody knows that everyone got paid the same, that there was equal pay for unequal work. Now, psychological study after psychological study shows that people hate this idea. Um, it goes against fairness. Um, people... Uh, uh, would rather um, uh, not get anything than to see people who they think is less deserving of them get the same amount that they do. Um, there are a lot of studies that show this. Um, but also, it... And uh, this idea of, like, 
you're in the front of the line and then all of a sudden you find yourself in the back of the line. This goes against our sense of fairness too. How many of you guys have stood in the grocery store line? Right, it's a long line, but then like people keep stacking up behind you, right? And then the register like next to you opens up and then the person that's in the very back makes the first move to get into uh, that line. Um, everybody knows that feeling, right? It, uh, you, it's the closest you might get to road rage uh, within a grocery store, except that you know, you're not in your car, you're not in this giant metal box, so you have to kind of hold it in a little bit. Um, although I've seen it happen, not happen sometimes, right? But all that is to say that if you want to know what the apocalypse looks like, this is what it looks like. The apocalypse isn't, uh, it isn't like the world like, you know, ending, um, like being completely destroyed and like uh, blown into smithereens, although I suppose in like a billion or two billion years, you know, when the sun goes out, that might happen. But, um, you know, Matthew is commonly understood as being a very apocalyptic gospel. And apocalyptic meaning that the world as we know it ends. When we start to live in a world where truly the last are first, when everyone gets paid, it's not even about being paid the same, but gets paid what they need to survive and to live on, regardless of like how much they think they deserve to get more or not, and others less. This is what the apocalypse looks like. This is what, when the world as we know it ends, and the world turns around. And uh, in the scripture passage, it ends in saying this is the great reversal. Um, and uh, the Gospel of Luke goes into this, I, takes this idea of the great reversal even farther. But it's this idea that the world is really turning around. And that this, Jesus says, this is what the kingdom of God looks like. This isn't, uh, this isn't just like some object lesson. Jesus is saying this is what the kingdom of God looks like. So every time you pray the Lord's Prayer and you say thy kingdom come, this is what you're praying for. So you might want to think twice the next time you pray that prayer if this, you don't like this idea. Um, because this is what you're praying for whether you know it or not. Because Jesus says this is what the kingdom of God is like. And the kingdom of God where we see glimpses of this is both here and now. But getting back to this idea of money, it, it's especially hard because we might believe and like idealize a day, a future day when the world looks like this. But Jesus is also saying, you need to put your money on the line. This is what he's saying to the rich young ruler. If you truly believe the message that I'm about, then you have to put your money on the line. And that's when we get to really see, do, are we committed? Are our faith and values really aligned with the way that we go about living our life? It's another thing to worship Jesus and to praise Jesus. It's another thing to actually follow Jesus. An example I can think of this, not necessarily in the church, but in the world, is every American says they believe in equal opportunity, 
you know, political poll after political poll shows that Americans don't believe in equal outcomes, but they believe that everyone should have the same opportunity. So, but one way to think about equal opportunity is that everybody has right to a good education, right? But in, the, in Cook County, we have, uh, we have several different school districts, but we have CPS schools. But we also have this school district in uh, Winneka, and there's a high school there called New Trier. I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's, uh, it's one of the most well-known high schools in the country. And it's a public school, but the per-pupil spending in New Trier is $35,000 a year per student. Um, that's the 2014 numbers, um, according to the state of Illinois website. Uh, the average CPS high school student re uh, receives $22,000 a year of support. So you have students in the North Shore who are receiving their the schools are spending 60% more money than the students that live in Chicago. Is that equal opportunity? Probably not, right? But everyone says they believe in equal opportunity, but it, that really goes against the grain of every parent wanting to give their kids the best opportunity possible, right? Those two values are in conflict. So if one, what does it mean to spend money? What does money look like if we really commit to the idea that every child should have an equal education, right? Um, that means you might spend a little less money on your kid and a little bit more money on others. I don't know, there, there's a lot of ways to figure that out. Um, we're not gonna talk pu public policy here, but where the rubber meets the road gets revealed in budgets, gets revealed in finances. So money, in a lot of ways, according to Jesus, deeply reveals our sense of spirituality. Because what spirituality is, is this alignment between what we believe or what we say we believe and how we act. And when those two things together is a spiritual life. When we live our lives aligned according to what we say we believe or what we profess to have faith in, that is what it means to be a spiritual person. So that is what we talk about when we talk about money. So what does money look like then when we say that everyone is created in the image of God? How is that not just your own personal budget, but whether it's our church budget or our national budget, if you really believe that everyone is created equally in the eye of, eyes of God, what does money look like? If we truly believe in forgiveness, what does money look like? If we believe in love thy neighbor as you love yourself, what does money look like? If you truly believe that God came to free us, to save us, 
What does money look like? This is what we mean in the church when we talk about stewardship. Stewardship isn't just about giving. In fact, giving is a small part of the equation. I mean, it's a very necessary part. Um, but giving is only a part of the equation. The church needs money because it spends money. But how do we spend the money? Right? So based on the, the church ledger sheet, um, about half the people that attend UVC sites uh, across all the sites uh, give, or at least put their name on an envelope and give. Um, you might have more people giving money, but we don't know who you are if, uh, if you're just you know, throwing uh, cash in the basket without putting your name on it. But we do know that about half the people give. But this past week, there was a meeting um, that uh, was had uh, to share about the church's finances. That was across the sites. 10 people showed up. So we have about two, we know about 280 people gave, but about 10 people showed up, right? But that was a meeting about, not just about how much money we need, but about how much money, where does our money go? Discussions about across the site, where does it matter? And I'm not, uh, this isn't to get down on anybody, but so, because churches too often spend, uh, equates this idea of stewardship with how you give your money. But it's just as important that you care about how the church spends its money, about where it goes. Um, does the reason why you're here align with the way the church is uh, spending its money? Um, sometimes, you know, accountants, you know, the main job of an account, uh, when you go to a financial meeting at churches that I've been in, um, it doesn't really happen at UVC that much. But in a lot of other churches I've been in, most people become accountants when it comes to the church budget meeting. Does the giving match the expenditures of the church? And if it doesn't, why? How can we get more money? Or where can we cut a little bit? Or if we have all this extra money, um, what can we do with that? Although that rarely ever happens. Um, <laughs> um, but there's often less of a focus on assessing on the balance sheet does our budget match up with our vision of what God's kingdom looks like? Does, the, does what we believe and profess to believe match up with our finances? So on that note, I encourage you to participate in the November 8th All Community Church Meeting where we'll talk about the finances uh, of this particular site. But more than that, I would encourage you as we uh, go through this series about you know, what's in Jesus' wallet and what's in your wallet to take some time to reflect um, on how you think about money. What does money represent? How is money a horcrux in your life? Who are the souls represented in your money? What are the values represented in your money? How are you valued in your money? How do you value others in your money? And as I close, I'm just going to close with an open reflection time, just for a minute or two. 
to think about these questions. How do your faith and values align with your understanding of money and your personal finances? What does it mean financially that we view everyone created in the image of God? What does money look like when it's bold, inclusive, and relevant? And reflect on our scripture today. What does it what does money mean when the last shall be first and the first shall be last? <laughs>